Orbital Gardens, this is Mission Control. We are confirming acquisition of your signal. You are live in 5, 4, 3, 2... Hello and welcome to episode 12 of Gardeners of the Galaxy, a podcast for all of the sentient beings in the universe who have a passion for plants. I am Emma the Space Gardener and I will be your host as we explore gardening on Earth and beyond. My guest on this week's show is Michael Wilkinson, a teacher who is bringing astrobotany to classrooms, working with Magnitude IO and their Exolab program. Hi Michael, thank you for coming on the show today. Oh, hi Emma, it's a real pleasure to join you. <laughs> so, you've got a really exciting job. You're Director of Education and a Lead Principal Investigator at Magnitude.io. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do? Yeah. Um, it's like for me, it's the perfect blend of science and education. I get to do basic research and I get to develop curriculum and support teachers around the world. And I'm a full time teacher as well. I, I teach fourth graders maths and science. So, um, of course, they're, they become my lab assistants, <laughs> um, uh, which is a little tricky in the pandemic, but, you know, we'll make yeah. them do it. They took all their, their plants home last week in anticipation that they wouldn't be back face to face for some time. We'll, we'll see what actually happens. But um, most of their most of their plants survived. Um, so what do I do for, Ma- for Magnitude um, is a small startup in Berkeley, California. And the the idea is to uh, distribute the science. Um, as you, you know, and some of your listeners probably know, it's very expensive to send science to space. Yeah. Um, it's very competitive. And it's not really something that most schools can, can easily do. So what we did is we created this platform that's a 2U lab that is an analog of our flight experiment. And the classrooms actually have their own version of the lab and, and then through the web interface they can observe their lab as well as the the one that's on orbit and then they are part of our data collection so while they're not sending their very own experiment to space they are part of a space flight experience um, and an important part of that because they're they're collecting the ground control data yeah. um, and so all of the classrooms who participate with us are co-investigators that's brilliant so as the director of education, I oversee the, the curriculum development to make sure things are pedagogically sound uh, as well as scientifically valid and giving teachers the resources they need to be able to implement um, this kind of work within their classroom. We try to align all of our lessons to the NGSS standards so that um, teachers don't have such a hard time trying to integrate it. And we get to do professional development with people and help them see how they can integrate this into what they're already doing in whether you're, it's a science class or a humanities class. It's really possible to put it into almost anything. And so that's, you know, the education side. And then as a PI side, the design of the experiment and carrying out all the ground control trials, working with our space flight provider, Space Tango, to design the hardware and the flight protocols, so it's, <laughs> which <laughs> sounds like a lot, but it's, it's I love it. Um, it's, you know, just to be involved in basic research and the potential of discovering something new uh, is, is just so exciting. And, um, you know, and, and running m- lots of iterations of the same thing over and over and over for the last couple of years, I, I don't get tired of it. It's, it's, I love to look at the data and play around with it. I just finished a data literacy class with my fourth graders and it's just so, we had so much fun looking at, it was a silly graph about, um, paper towel purchases over <laughs> the last year. 
Um, and you know, up to in March, the U.S. was over 150 percent above the 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 nominal purchases, which is and then so they were telling me stories about how you know they were building forts out of the paper towel packages and thrones and all. You know, they had things stashed everywhere in their their little <laughs> yeah. Manhattan apartments. Wow. Um, so that's kind of what my you know. Yeah, that's kind amazing. of what I get to do. And I get to work with this great team of other educators, my co-PIs, we call them the magnitude PIs. Um, and, and, you know, they're all fabulous teachers in their own rights. Many of them have space flight experience, uh, through other programs, uh, not just through the, the magnitude exalab. So there's just, you know, it's this incredibly wonderful group of people to work with. Um, fabulous. I want to come play. <laughs> so one quick question. You mentioned that the exolab is a two, you unit. Yes, excuse me. I threw in the vernacular there and did that bad boy. Um, yeah, two U. So um, a one U lab is based on back in the cube cube lab days. Um, it's a ten by ten by ten centimeter uh, cube, so a, a, a thousand cubic centimeters or one liter. Um, and so we have a two U lab. Uh, that we've flown on the first seven missions. Um, and because of some of the, uh, the way we're pushing the, the development on this flight, we're actually going to just found out we're actually going to be flying a four U lab, which is very exciting because it doesn't change the size of our experiment, but it makes room for, um, the, the, some of the other mechanics within it and the electronics that we need that would have probably made our experiment too hot. So. So that's kind of an exciting development. We have a little bit of airspace um, that that we wouldn't have had. Okay, so as you say, you've sent or you've already sent seven plant biology missions into space with ExoLab, um, and number eight is launching next year. So for the first three missions, you use the model plant Arabidopsis. Um, so can you tell us what students learned from from growing that plant in space? Um, through the the Arabidopsis. Um, one of the things that we found, and I think it's one of the most important lessons, is how difficult it is to do science in space. <laughs> um, <laughs> our our first flight, I think we were at 35C, and Arabidopsis do not like that environment. It's they don't grow very well at that. And so what it did is it really it it opened us up to this whole opportunity of design challenges with students. Okay, so we've got this issue of it's too hot. How can we mitigate this? These are our limitations. What can we do? Yeah. So it was this great design engineering um, exper- experiment. Um, students were able to co- try to uh, uh, simulate the conditions in their classroom and see how their plants did and try to experiment with different things. We had chosen Arabidopsis because so much is known about it, um, and that was a good first plant to start with. Um, and so, one of the, like I say, one of the main things we learned through those three experiments is just some of the work that we have to do to have a trial be able to go through its full lifespan. Um, and I think we, at some point we may fly Arabidopsis again because of the things we've learned, but there's, there's a couple of other directions um, that we're, we're pursuing right now. So after the Arabidopsis, you moved on to two sets of microgreens. Why did you choose to investigate those? Um, the microgreens really was a reflection of, of the research that other groups were doing, um, growing beyond earth and starting to look at microgreens. Um, they were growing microgreens in the veggie or at least the lettuces. Uh, and, and it, 
was something that um, students could grow in their classroom and have a consumable, yeah. something that they really maybe saw more as a plant. Uh, you know, astrobotanists love Arabidopsis because we know so much about it, and it's <laughs> it's a full you know it's a flowering plant, the whole the whole nine yards. It's not very exciting, but to students. <laughs> And not so much. No. Although we did have some beautiful ground specimens of the Arabidopsis, I must say. Some of the classes grew some amazing Arabidopsis plants, and they did go through their full life cycle and produce the Siliques and um, seed themselves in the media. So um, that was fun. But the, the microgreens, having something they could actually eat um, and, and saw it as a more practical plant, um, just as NASA and, uh, was doing and Fairchild was doing, um, and we had a different platform than they. So, so looking at the limitations of space and, you know, the physical volume that we have for the experiment. And, and it was a plant that we could grow. We grew four different varieties in the, the 2U lab. So we could look at, at, um, we were looking at, uh, pak choy, wasabi, uh, purslane and, um, amaranth. So we were able to do comparisons. Were different plants more suitable for space flight than others? Um, so that that just is why we went that direction with those two labs. And did you find that one of them was a star microgreen for space, or were they all good? Well, I mean, pak choy certainly germinates pretty easily, and you can eat pretty readily get it to a a, a, a usable microgreen. Uh, students found, you know, we got to figure out how to make this wasabi work because it adds the spice that we need to our to our salads. <laughs> um, as, as did the amaranth purslane, um, was really tricky. And yeah. I was actually surprised because it being more of a succulent, I thought it would do better, but, um, it was very difficult to get to grow well in all conditions. I've tried growing purslane in my hydroponic system and it just turned into a sprawling mess. It was really not, <laughs> not very friendly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the other issue is the growth form in a test tube isn't so great. So it's, and that's the other pieces. Okay, so what are, again, what are the limitations? If we're trying to grow things in a very small space, which of these plants have the best chance in those small spaces? Yeah. Okay. So then you moved a little bit away from sort of straightforward plant experiments, uh, and you're now working with nitrogen-fixing bacteria. So why do you think it's important that we take those into space with us? Okay, so this is where I took over as PI. Um I grew up in Iowa and, um, you know, had an intimate knowledge of crop rotation from, you know, I can't remember how early. It was just something that, you know, was like born in knowledge. Um, so seeing the rotation of uh, soybeans, alfalfa and uh, corn, that was just, you know, that's what happened. And I, I knew that um, soybeans and alfalfa produced these growths on their roots that was really important for the soil. But as a kid, didn't really you know, didn't understand it. I don't know if anybody around me really knew the biology behind it other than it was, it helped uh, nutrify the soil and reinforce the nitrogen that you were going to suck dry with the corn, <laughs> but, you know, on that third, that third season. Yeah. Um, and it was always something that, that was percolating in the back of my brain. So in university, then I learned more about the, the, you know, the nitrogen fixation process and how unique these, these, uh, soil bacteria were. Uh, in being able to, to fix nitrogen. So when the opportunity came, we were looking at what else could we do with the lab? My thought was, well, we could put four of those small 30 uh, millimeter plates in the, the lab 
uh, and, and see how the bacteria grows. Will it, will it grow the same way as it does on Earth? Will it even be able to fix nitrogen in microgravity? Uh, so that was the purpose for the first one. And, and, um, we were able to, to at least qualitatively establish that the, um, rhizobia, uh, we use rhizobia leguminosarum were able to fix nitrogen and, and we did that through, um, adding some bromthymol blue to the media. So we were able to see color changes. We also saw good growth. The big difference is they don't swarm as much in microgravity as they do, uh, on earth. They tend to spread out in like a star shaped pattern okay. in the colonies, um, uh, in earth gravity, but in microgravity, those colonies stayed really small. Um, so there was a lot learned there and that then, kind of created the foundation for where I was going with all of this. If we're going to farm in space, we can't take ammonia. That's not going to work. <laughs> it's really expensive up mass wise and resource wise and energy wise to produce nitrates and nitrites in situ. Not very safe either. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, all you need to do is see the explosion this past summer in Lebanon to, yeah. to know that's not a good idea. Um, so we've got to have a biological solution. Yeah. And so then immediately my, you know, my, my farm boy brain clicked on and said, wait a minute, there's this thing that we can do with legumes. So, uh, my hypothesis is we can use clover as a, as a pioneer plant and, um, with its, if, with its, uh, rhizobia symbiont and start to establish a soil from regolith. And after a couple of generations of that, we should have something viable that we could then run larger legumes like my, my, my first choice are cowpeas because they're, they're so, uh, resistant to so many issues that we face in spaceflight, heat and the, the moisture issues and, and they're, you know, I love black eyed peas. I got all kinds of recipes I can share anytime. <laughs> um, and, and so it'd be something, you know, nutritious, tasty, the sprouts we can eat, lots of, you know, lots of possibilities in terms of a food source. Yeah. And then we can end up growing Jacob's peppers and, uh, you know, the, you know, the Chimayo peppers. Oh, you mean Jacob Torres's peppers? Yeah. And we can, we can grow some grains and we, yeah, we won't, <laughs> we won't just be eating microgreens and legumes. <laughs> Um, yeah, that might get a bit so off. that to me is very exciting that I think there's a real potential to produce a viable soil out of regolith. Yeah. And we, if we can do that in space, we can definitely reclaim lost arable land on this planet and address the issues of, of world hunger that are, that, you know, are only getting worse. Yeah. Uh, and be able to produce a high quality plant-based proteins. Um, you know, and I love some of your past guests with the duckweed and, and things like <laughs> I've actually, I'm trying to, Grow some duckweed right now. She inspired me on that one. I'm not having so much luck in the germination process yet, so I'm not doing something right. But like all good science, it'll come. Um, and now we got radishes and you know, all these things that they're going to require a, new, a good nitrogen base. Um, yeah. So that's that's where the why going to legumes. We chose clover as a model organism because of its size. We're growing in a in, growing them in um, 50 milliliter test tubes. And, you know, close to half of that has to be the media. Yeah. So, um, that's our, our model in our, in our small lab. And then if that goes well, then maybe we can get into the APH or veggie and grow some cowpeas. 
<laughs> that would be awesome. I love yeah. having these conversations because people are like doing these like, you know, little tiny experiments in spaceflight. But I mean, the vision for it is just so huge. It's like, we're going to grow this right. on Mars. We're going to grow this on the moon. We're going to, you know, it's going to be so productive. We're going to be like bringing food back from the moon. Exactly. <laughs> my, my, my fantasy is that I get a Bigelow module and I'm, I'm growing my cow peas in that. <laughs> And it, uh, <laughs> you you want an inflatable farm attached yes. to a space station? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I don't know and then and then of course you know I got to go up and tend my garden, and that's the other fantasy: is to be able to teach from orbit. From space. How yeah. fantastic would that be? Yeah, I mean NASA do some really good work on that. It's limited. Yeah, but we've got. I mean, yes, we've had teachers up there, but to have someone whose mission was to teach. Just to teach. Well, we have an we have an entirely new generation of astrobotanists to yes to grow, so it's very important. <laughs> so yeah, I'm with you on that one. Right, okay. So we're talking about Exolab Eight, which you have started working on with your students across the country already, um, and that's going to involve growing, as you say, a legume in space. And you're currently choosing which one. So who who are the candidates? Okay, that's a great question. Um, we started out with a whole range uh, over a year ago of of legume candidates. Um, if I can remember them all, uh, clover was was one, uh, cowpeas, soybeans, lentils, chickpeas, alfalfa. I'm thinking there was one more, but it, I'm drawing a blank. Oh, uh, garden peas. Garden peas. Ah, okay. Um, and uh, the my co-PIs uh, all adopted one of those, championed its cause, um, researched the the benefits of it, and and ran their own growth trials. Um, we also had students involved in the late spring and throughout the summer that were doing the same thing. Yeah. Um, the Craft Academy out of uh, Kentucky, uh, Moorhead State uh, College. Uh, there was a group of kids there that were replicating the experiments and and testing out the different legumes to see which made sense as flight candidates. And then between the work that the Craft Academy was doing and that the, all the other students and, and PIs, uh, uh, investigators were doing, uh, we came down to the clover because, uh, we could, we were establishing nodulation solidly within two weeks. Um, and they stayed within the space. They did okay with sealed test tubes. Um, so it looked like they were they're going to be able to withstand they've got the best chance of withstanding the stresses of launch and and being on orbit. Obviously, we can only eat clover sprouts, which are actually quite tasty. Yeah. Um and and pretty nutritious. They get kind of bitter as they mature. But it again, it'll it like Arabidopsis has served as a model plant for so much research. I think the clover for our legume research is a is a good model. Uh and then hopefully we can expand to larger plants. Okay, so you have picked your legume astronaut candidate. Um, yeah, our leguminot is <laughs> is clover, uh, Trifolium pratense, so the red clover. And when is it sort of scheduled to blast off, roughly? We're manifest for uh, NG15, uh, which is due to launch on February 1st. We'll see if we go that early or not. Yeah. Um, but that's that's what we're targeted for right now. Uh, which So the, the official ground trials in terms of curriculum for... For classrooms starts in January. They'll have a four-week cycle to run their their um, their clover experiments, and then 
go follow us through the flight, which will be four to six weeks of data collection. We'll preserve the specimens. And when um, SpaceX 22 comes back down, we'll have our, our um, flight specimens to do some microscopic uh, analysis of the roots uh, to, to confirm active nodulation. And then classes can follow us through that whole process as well and do their own post-flight or uh, analysis of their, their ground trials. That's fabulous. I almost want to go back to school now so that I can, you know, be a student in this era of space plants because they just didn't really exist when I was at school. No, right? Who even thought? I know. Kids these days get to send experiments into space. I'm like, why couldn't I do that? Yeah, except we were already supposed to have a colony on the on the moon by now. But other than that, <laughs> well, that's just <laughs> politics. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> okay, so when you launch your leguminaut, the clover, into space, it's going to have a virtual teacher blasting yeah, alongside cool? it. So how cool is that? So tell us about Astromoji. Okay, this is such, I, this is so fun. I was I was totally poo pooing this in the beginning. So over the <laughs> summer, if you're an educator, you know there's there's this craze of Bitmoji classrooms, and I was like, I don't get it, I don't get it. And then I started to realize there was a real application that with the pandemic, kids have got so much they don't know they can't handle not knowing what's happening next in school. So using a Bitmoji classroom where they've got stuff that's predictable and constant and place to refer to actually serves a great purpose. And I totally got sucked into it and use it myself in my classroom. And um, we developed a partnership with Bitmoji to create some Astromojis. So if you have Bitmoji and you just search space, you'll find yourself in your EMMU and your EMU holding a plant, which I saw you found, Emma. <laughs> <laughs> I have my astro emoji. <laughs> or if you're a literary person, you can be floating around reading a book. And yeah. So we're inviting teachers to share their favorite bitmoji, and we'll be selecting at random some lucky teacher to fly as a sticker on the outside of our for you uh, lab. That's so so amazing. <laughs> he or she will get to accompany the leguminots, make sure that they're being pedagogically sound. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so it's just, it's a fun way to engage people. Um, and, you know, it's like how many, you know, the thousands of people to throw their names in to fly on a, on a microchip, just their name yeah. to, to, you know, just even on this last dragonfly to get your virtual ticket. Yes. Um, I got my virtual ticket. My good name, for you. my name went to Mars with perseverance. Excellent. Um, so yeah, my name is in yeah. space, even if I never get there. Right. So it's, it, yeah, it's that thing of, there is a piece of me out there, you know, not just your imagination. And yeah. and that's, I think, the thing that's so compelling. There's no shortage of awe and wonder. Um, you know, my my pedagogical model in science with students is always, what do you notice? What do you wonder? And, you know, we have hours and hours of conversation around that that go somewhere. Yeah. Um, Curiosity is our most yes. valuable trait as far as I'm concerned. It really is. And that's why, you know, our tagline at Magnitude is powered by curiosity. Right then. Okay, so we've talked about sending a little piece of ourselves out into the universe, but if you were able to take yourself off to a colony on the moon or a Mars, or if you've been listening to the show Venus. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, a floating colony on Venus. So wherever there is a colony for you to join, if you could only take one plant in your hand luggage on that trip, what would you choose and why? Okay. It's so this hard. has been... 
this is really hard. <laughs> um, and unlike some people who, uh, you know, some of your past guests, I can't bring, you know, my favorite house plant here because I've gotten so involved in my experimental plants in, in my lab here at home. There's, I don't There's have space. time to tend to house plants. <laughs> um, the best I do is growing some wheatgrass for my cats. Uh, so I think I'm going to count on the guest who the one or two guests were taking jade plants that I can get a, a, a cutting from them. Okay. I like this idea of a meetup. We're all going to meet up in this colony in space. It's going to be wall to wall space gardeners. It would be like the best place ever. Yes. Right. Yeah. So It'd be outstanding. Fun. Yeah. Outstanding. Okay. Right. Um, I'm going to have to go with agave. Ah, okay. Why? Because the, you know, the, the nectar, there's just so many uses for that, uh, medicinal and otherwise. Uh, and, um, you know, if I can grow the agave ball big enough, I can maybe go into tequila production. Yeah. You'd be very popular. We're going to need some, uh, flavors of ethanol to get through those <laughs> long lunar nights or the yeah. cold Martian winters. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's, and just, it's a, it's a beautiful hardy plant. And when they bloom, the blooms are, you know, those are, those are, the, that flowering uh, raceme is just so gorgeous. Um, Good choice. So I, I like think that's that. where I'm going to have to go, agave. Ooh. Interesting. Okay, so we're going to need a bit of a desert habitat in this massive great garden colony on Mars. It's been a real pleasure having you on the show, Michael. So thank you for coming on and sharing your work with us and your fantasy space plant. That's awesome. Oh, thank you so much for the opportunity, Emma. It's it's a great pleasure and it just feels like a real privilege to be able to share um, what I'm doing with, with your listeners. Thank you. Well, I wish you all the best for ExoLab 8. I'm sure everybody listening will be keeping their eyes glued to the launch schedule next year and we'll Watch your leguminot fly. That'd be fantastic. Yes, please cheer us on. <laughs> we will be cheering you on with our astromojis. Yes, teachers, <laughs> send in your astromojis. <laughs> I will put a link to um, to all that in the show notes for people who want more information about creating their own astromoji and sending them in to you for their chance to fly into space. Thank you, Emma. That's it for this episode. You'll find the show notes on my website, theunconventionalgardener.com, which is also home to a virtual tip jar for those of you who would like to support the show. If you want to become a regular supporter, you can sign up via patreon.com forward slash gardeners of the galaxy to gain access to extended episodes and bonus content. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Orbital Gardens, this is Mission Control, confirming termination of your signal. We have activated the auto kettle and you are T minus three minutes. Mission Control Act.